All right, First Timothy chapter 3. If you remember, when we first started this letter, Paul had left for Macedonia and he left Timothy at Ephesus with an important task. And it was right out of the gate there to prevent certain people, certain individuals from teaching false doctrine. That's the way the letter actually begins. These men were enamored with false myths, Jewish myths, endless genealogies, mere speculations. They are teachers of the law who thought that Christians had to live by all of the ceremonial laws and everything else in the Old Testament in order to gain and keep their salvation. And so right out of the gate, that's what Paul challenges. It was so severe and so concerning that Paul, when he wrote to Titus, who was facing something very similar than Crete, he said that these men needed to be silenced because they were upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now that wasn't the only issue that the Ephesians were facing. We saw this as we went through chapter 2 and even into chapter 3. There was apparently some wrath and dissension, infighting among some of the men in the church. Some of the women were dressing and behaving inappropriately. There was even a problem when it came to teaching and authority in the church where the roles were sort of mixed up. In many respects, you could refer to it as a dysfunctional church. In fact, in the message coming up here, I kind of start that way by saying that Ephesus was kind of dysfunctional in many respects. When we get to verses 14 and 15, our passage today of chapter 3, we kind of get to the heart and soul of what Paul was concerned about, why he left Timothy there. It wasn't just about the false teaching. We're just going to read that and then we'll come back. There's just a few short verses. We'll spend some time digesting this. But Paul says in chapter 3, verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in in the world, taken up in glory. It's a summary of the gospel right there. So in our passage today, Paul's going to address the importance and necessity of proper conduct for members of God's church. That's what our passage is about today. Why is it so important that we conduct ourselves properly? There's a variety of reasons. I'm going to give you just three of them today. The first is that we're a family. Plain and simple. In families, there's an expectation that we behave a certain way. The second is that the church is the church of the living God, and that's going to be important. And then lastly... The church is the pillar and support of the truth. We're going to see how all those relate to why it's so important that we behave appropriately. Let's go ahead and look at the first one. The church, we're a family. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you ought to know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Paul had hoped to come back here to Timothy, or to Timothy, come to Ephesus himself. He doesn't say why he wanted to come specifically, but um, we can assume it was because he was concerned about what was happening in Ephesus. Paul had spent over three years in Ephesus. We see that when you go back to Acts 20, when he went back to visit them, visit the elders. He didn't go back to Ephesus specifically, but sailed by it and had the elders come, and he expresses his concern to them about some of the things that were going to take place there. 
He said they'd be infiltrated by false teachers and wolves and sheep's clothing would come in. And so Paul had not only lived there, he understood who the Ephesians were. He was probably friends with many of them, as you can imagine, spending three years there. And so he knew very well the stuff that was happening at Ephesus. And so when he left Timothy there to care for that, that didn't necessarily assuage his concern. He still wanted to make it back to Ephesus himself to address some of these things. He knew he could trust Timothy, but he was still concerned and wanted to go back there himself. But he knew that he couldn't quite go at at the time here. We don't know why, but he couldn't quite get back there. So he wrote to Timothy and shared some of his concerns with Timothy, Timothy to make sure that those things were addressed. And so he tells him that right out of the gate that he was hoping to come to them before long, but he says, in case I'm delayed, here's some things I want you to address. And you notice, the very thing that he says is how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now there are a number of terms in the Bible that are used for the church. The first one is obviously just that word church, and it means an assembly, a gathering. It was used not just for the church, but actually it was a term used in the community for other things. When people would come together, it's a gathering, an assembly, and that's exactly what we are. It's where God's people come together. That's why we call this Renew Bible Church. It's where God's people come together. Other terms that we see in the scriptures, body of Christ, we see that in 1 Corinthians 12. We see phrases like the flock of God, which likens us to sheep. We have the bride of Christ, that's also mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5, 25, and elsewhere, including the book of Revelation. We even have the temple of God. We're referred to as the temple of God. So we have all these great terms, body of Christ, flock of God, bride of Christ, temple of God. Each of these emphasizes a different aspect of who we are as many members of one body. We're like sheep with a shepherd in Christ. We're a temple, a building that God dwells within. These are all great terms describing who we are. But here Paul uses another term for who we are. Notice he says that we are the household of God. That term household there is really a reference to family. The household in in the first century there included not just husband, wife, and children, but oftentimes slaves and servants and and others who were a part of that. It It was considered a unit. And they were all considered part of a family. And so another way to to understand this is to say that we are the family of God. We all know what that's like to be part of a household and a family, don't we? We all have certain expectations. I have some with my own kids. There are certain things, certain behavior that I expect of my children. One of them is, don't do anything that dishonors Jesus. Okay. Another one is, don't do anything that embarrasses your dad. We have rules of the family, things we'll do. We have certain responsibilities, certain things that they have to do within the household. In fact, I've had this conversation many times with my kids when they would say, well, what are you going to pay us for that, Dad? And I'm, I look at them and I say, you get to eat, don't you? You got a roof over your head, don't you? You want to wear clothes? And I explain to them, there are certain things that you will do as part of this family. There's these duties and these expectations. You're part of a family. And so that's what Paul highlights here. Now, he doesn't define here exactly how one is to behave here. He simply says that he writes to Timothy so that somebody might know how they ought to conduct themselves in God's family. We know elsewhere, though, that these things are given to us. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27.
Philippians 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. So Paul says here, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That sets the standard. When we behave, we should do it in a way that is worthy of the one who saved us. That's the standard that has been set for us. Much like in our family, the standard we set for our children. And so here we're told that the standard is Christ. How about Ephesians chapter 4? This is an interesting one, considering Paul is writing this to Timothy, who's at Ephesus. And Paul had written to the Ephesians to tell them what their behavior should be like. Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter, one, or, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the, <clears throat> prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There was one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he tells them there to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, and then he goes on this, this long litany of there's one, one, we're to be one. That's the way a family is supposed to operate. Family is supposed to be unified. And so we're called to that. <clears throat> we're called to live in a way that is worthy of Christ makes us part of a family. We should work as a unit in many respects. We should have oneness. That's the way a family operates. Once we become members of God's family, and here's our takeaway, once we become members of God's family, His household, He expects us to start behaving like it. We should expect that of one another. That's why we have the authority to confront one another over behavior that's inappropriate. I should be able to expect you to live in a way that honors Christ. And you, likewise, should be able to expect me to live in a way that honors Christ. That's what family does. They hold one another accountable. When I was in college, or shortly after I graduated college, I had to make some decisions. I'm going out into the work world. So, some of you may or may not have seen the picture from my Patty certificate, which is the scuba diving certificate, of what I looked like when I was in college. I looked like a thug. Had longer hair, beard. Nothing wrong with that. Just didn't look good on me back then. I dressed a lot in black. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. I didn't do it for any reason other than I just thought I looked good in black. But so I graduated, and I knew I was going to have to go out and start interviewing. And about that time, I had come across the book Dress for Success, which talked about the whole power tie thing and the color things, right? So I went out and I bought myself a copy, and I read it, and I went out and I bought myself some suits, and so I went from this long-haired beard with T-shirt and blue jeans and tennis shoes and went out and found myself a tie and a suit and got myself a haircut. I actually shaved off the beard. I think I've told you the story before how... Um, 
Vice President Bush was in town campaigning, and so I was working for a Christian radio station, and my job was to interview a lot of political candidates, and so we went to um, see George Bush at the, uh, at the convention, and so I did all that before I went. Got all decked out. I looked like one of the Secret Service guys. I came back to the radio station a little bit early, and I was in my office, and these people kept coming back from the front office area looking at me and then walking away, and it's because they didn't recognize me. Found out they thought I was part of his Secret Service team until they realized, they heard me talk, and they said, Mike, that's you? I'm like, yes, it's me. Well, because I radically look different. Now, why do I share that story? Well, because I knew that by going out into the world, by getting a real job, my behavior would have to be a little bit different. I'd have to dress appropriately. I could not do a job in sales or even in radio dressed like I had been dressing in college. I was fine when I dressed that way in college, but now I had to change. My behavior had to represent the company that I would work for and other things, and so I did it all. Looked so much more appropriate. And what's interesting is that it's funny how when you dress appropriately, how sometimes it even changes your behavior. That's kind of interesting. So a goofy story to simply drive home a point. When we become members of God's family... He expects us to stop behaving like we belong in the world and start living like we're part of his family. I expect certain things of my kids. And the Lord expects certain things of us. And it has to do with the fact that we're part of a family now. I want you to return to Ephesians chapter 4 again. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to jump down to verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as, Christ, or just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. When we become members of the family of Christ, we put off the old, we put on the new, and we start acting like members of that body. I have a friend of mine who adopted a young boy who had been raised in the foster care system. And certain behavior was acceptable where he was before. But now that he was in a new family, that behavior had to be corrected. There's an expectation, no, you're part of this family now. You'll behave a certain way as part of this family now. And so Paul, when you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 there, he says, we ought to act a certain way because we're part of a family. Let's move on to his second point here. Look at verse 15 again. I want to refocus now on what he says there. Know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. That, I think, is key. There are a number of implications with this statement. The first implication is that the church belongs to God. It's his household. We just saw that in a bit. But it says it's the church of the living God. Of is an important word there. He purchased 
the church. He purchased you and me with his own blood, did he not? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to bounce around a couple of passages here. So we are not only God's household, meaning we're a family, but we are church of the living God. And you'll see how that's going to develop here in just a minute. But I want to start with this idea that he purchased us. Acts chapter 20. Jump down to verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God. And look at this. Which he purchased with his own blood. These are Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. The very people that Paul is now kind of writing to Timothy and talking to the the elders at that church, he's reminding them here in chapter 20, on his last visit with them, that they're, they're shepherding... God's church, but it's a church that he owns. He purchased it with a pretty substantial price, his own blood. Turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. We'll we'll start with verse 8. Is that right? When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and look at this, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest our God, and they will reign upon the earth. We get this reference again to God purchasing us. So the first thing we see there is that the Lord purchased us with his own blood, which makes us his possession. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Paul wrote the letter to Titus about the same time that he wrote 1 Timothy. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We'll start in verse 10. I'm sorry, uh, we'll start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up, or gave himself, for us to redeem us from the lawless deeds and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for godly deeds, or for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so again, we find out here that the church is the Lord's possession. He owns us. He purchased us. So when we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Paul says we are the household of God which is the church of the living God, that word of is all about the fact that he purchased us and that we are now his possession. There's an expectation with that. Now second implication is that because God is alive, he's the living God, he sees and he cares about our conduct, does he not? 
want you to think of something for a second. Ephesus, Ephesus was a pagan city. There were Greeks and Romans who worshipped dead gods in temples filled with man-made idols of metal and stone. Their gods were dead. Think about this for a second. Dead gods cannot care about what you do. They can't see it. They can't judge you for it. They can't praise you for it. They're dead. They don't care. In fact, one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament is when God was tipping over the idols. They'd come back and put them back up. And they'd come in the next morning and the idols... On his face, I had this... <laughs> I sent it to Dustin. I was in an office down in um, Beaver Creek. And I sat down at one of my users' desks and she had a little statue of... I think it was a Hindu god. Arms and stuff. And so I saw it sitting right there on the monitor. So I took a picture of it. And then I took it and I tipped it over and put it on its face and sent another picture to Dustin. I said, remind you of anything? It's a dead God. They don't care. They can't lift themselves back up. But Paul says that we are of the household of God, which is a church of the living God. God is living, which means that he sees us. He cares about us. He watches us, but it also makes us accountable to him. So it's no lie when we say, gee, God might have seen that. So when we do something or we behave a certain way, God is perfectly, there is no way we can flee from his presence. It's right there. He's a living God. So the second implication is that because he's alive, he sees and he cares about our conduct. That should regulate our conduct. You know, it's interesting how when we're kids, we'll do certain things if we know our parents can see it, and we might do other things if they can't see it, right? Now, we were all sitting around. We go back to the Green Bay every other Christmas to see all, all my siblings, family, everybody gets together. It's, it's still awesome. I think this might be the last year that maybe... Not every cousin will be there because they're graduating and stuff, you know, so it'll be an interesting time. But we'll see. But um, we were sharing some stories a few years back. My brother and I were talking about the things that we did when we were in high school. And there were things that mom didn't know about. <laughs> and she was kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say she's freaking out, but she's like, you did what? And we're like, oh, yeah. That's what kids do, right? And some of them were, you know, I don't think we ever did anything super, super dangerous, but there was some pretty radical stuff that we did that we hid from mom and dad, and it's because we knew mom and dad wouldn't see it. We would not have done those things had mom and dad been a little bit more, um, let's say, omniscient. If dad and mom had eyes in the back of their heads and on the side of their heads and all the way around, we probably would have behaved a little differently. Come on, I see you guys smirking. You all know what I'm talking about, right? In fact, is there anything you might do that your kids don't... Maybe you wouldn't do them if your kids saw them? Come on, be honest. But God's a living God. He sees everything. And so because we're part of His family, and because we are His possession, and because He purchased us, and because He is a living God who sees us, that ought to help us with our behavior. We ought to conduct ourselves, Paul says, and... A certain way. The third implication of him being a living God is just that. It makes us accountable to him. He doesn't just see it. We're now accountable. Why? Because he doesn't just simply say, I saw it, so what, big deal, moving on. No, there's an accountability there, right? Much like with your own kids. You know, just think about it. If, if you could see it, 
and never did anything about it, there's no accountability, would it matter to the kids then? No. The reason why kids don't want their parents to see them doing certain things is because they know there's some accountability there. Right? Now, it's certainly true that even the unsaved are accountable to God. But it's especially true of the church, is it not? We're members of his family. We're his possession. And so there's double accountability in many respects there. Hebrews chapter 3. Just listen to this. Chapters, or verses 12 through 13. Take care, brethren, that there may not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice the warning there. Take care. There's accountability. None of us want to ultimately have to face Christ and try to make excuses for our behavior. What we did when we knew better. 1 Peter chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 4. This is a sobering reminder of this. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with all those really nasty people out there, right? Is that what it says? Where does judgment begin? Yeah, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There's that family again. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is difficult that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So it begins with, judgment begins with us, it ends with, so you ought to do what's right. Now, I know that's not a touchy-feely thing. But that's the reality of it, right? Because God is a living God. We're his possession. Because he's a living God, he sees our conduct, good and bad. But lastly, we're accountable to him. And the really great thing about that is that accountability is sort of two-directional in the sense that When we do wrong, there's consequences. But when we do right, the Lord sees that as well. You know, it's much like our own kids. You know, they should be encouraged to not just not do wrong, because, you know, we don't want Dad coming down on us. But it should be, I want to do right. I want to please my Dad. I want to please my mom. So there's that two-sided part of it, and that's... Essentially, when we talk about the accountability to God that we have, because he sees us, we should be doing things that want to please him, not just avoiding things that displease him. That's where the unsaved world oftentimes gets it wrong, when they see us. Oh, the church is just about judgment. No, it's not. We want to please the one who purchased us. That's what motivates our behavior. In fact, that should be really the greater motivator, should it not? You know, spanking or dis, you know, that type of... That's not always the greatest motivator. 
Now it helps. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's the only motivator. I, I remember when I, I got arrested when I was in high school for something stupid. And uh, fortunately, the judge was very gracious. But I remember my dad had had it with me, and he said, basically, I just wasn't listening. I was just ignoring what he said, and I ignored him one last time. And uh, so he very calmly, when, when he got home, took me down to the basement, and uh, you may or may not agree with this, but um, he basically said, son, stay here a moment. And I went, okay. And he went back to his wood shop, and he brought back a piece of wood, it was not a big piece of wood, but a, kind of like a giant, like a yardstick. It was pretty, it was flexible, you know. Didn't have any spikes or nails on the end of it, it you know. Um, but he came in and he said, drop your pants. And I went, no, excuse me? I was 13 at the time. He said, drop your pants. And I went, I don't think so. And he looked at me and he said, drop your pants. And he was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. I was a lot more arrogant. But it didn't matter in this particular instance because strength has a tendency to overpower arrogance and uh, so I said no no I'm not I'm too old to be spanked and he goes drop your pants believe it or not I dropped my pants and I bent over and I grabbed my ankles because he told me to and he took that instructive tool and applied some wisdom to my backside never lost his cool was calm explained to me what he was doing and why he was doing it and I think maybe he smacked my bottom three four times it stung, but I was a man. I could take it. I was more embarrassed than anything else. He said, wait here. Went back to his wood shop, put the wood away. Came back and said, pull your pants up, son. And we went back upstairs. We sat down and we ate. Never chastised me verbally. Never yelled at me. Just very calmly and methodically said, look, I'm your dad. I'm responsible for you. You're not listening. And if this is what it's going to take, then this is what I'm going to do. I tell that story and it almost uh, brings tears to my eyes only because that was a huge turning point in my life because the person I was hanging out with and the person that I got arrested with spent time ultimately himself in jail. His life took a different trajectory than mine did. And to be real honest, it wasn't because I just went, huh, that's a, I want to go that direction. No, it's because Dad said, you're not going in that direction. Now again, you may or may not, that's the only, I mean, my dad would spank us occasionally, but never in anger, and that's one of the few times I actually remember getting spanked by him. Probably because I was 13. Thank God he did it. We're accountable, because God is a living God. I never remember the. I remember the time that um, I had gotten done preaching a sermon. My dad came to seminary for my graduation, and um, I don't remember where it was after that. But I preached a sermon and came up, and he just gave me a huge hug. It's the first time I ever heard him say he was proud of me. And it's not because he just wasn't a very verbal guy, and we knew growing up that he was proud of us kids. We always knew that. Uh, you could just tell, but he never said it, and it never bothered me until hugging me, and he said, uh, "You know, man, I'm proud of you." And it just hit me like, wow, he's never said that. I've never missed it, but boy, was that good to hear. You know, I had a desire. I wanted my dad to be happy and proud with us kids. And that was ultimately, you know, and, you know as I grew up, a much better motivator. But, so we're accountable. So, what's our takeaway with all this? If we served a dead God, our behavior wouldn't matter. But we serve a living God and He cares about us. He loves us. 
He died for us. He purchased us. He redeemed us. He brought us into his family. He adopted us. And so part of being a part of his family is that he's a living God and he cares. He sees. Even so much that he's willing to discipline us when necessary. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read a long passage here, but I think it's going to be good for us. It's one you're all familiar with. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to jump down into verse 4, actually. He's talking about Christ, initially, who endured hostility because of who he was on our behalf. And so Paul then goes from, or the author of Hebrews goes from there into this. You haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Christ did. He said, you haven't. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, don't neglect lightly, or don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Gee, sounds like my dad. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. Why? You are a part of his family. So he deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Therefore... Or furthermore, we have earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those whom have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm going to stop there. We're accountable because he's a living God. And he disciplines us because he loves us. And that term discipline oftentimes just gets a bad rap. It's not just about spanking, metering out punishment at times. It's about training, and that's what that text said. Training. That's what discipline is. And so the second point from Paul's passage here is that we're not just a part of God's family, but we're a part of a family that is... Ultimately, that of a living God who is alive, loves us, sees us, chastises us when necessary. The third thing we're going to see here in this passage, and we'll finish ultimately up on this, but the third thing is that the church is the pillar in support of the truth. So the church is a family. The church is the possession of a living God. And then lastly, the church is the pillar in support of the truth. And this is, I think, where that behavior that Paul started with, Timothy, I need you to understand how the church is supposed to behave. This is where it all comes together. You may not immediately see the connection, but hold on, we'll get there. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. The very end of verse 15, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those verses or those phrases right there. It's an expression of the gospel. What I want to focus on is that he says that we are, the church, 
we are the pillar and the support of that very confession that we saw right there in those words. Now, there are two primary debates about this particular passage here, or this verse. The first is whether this should be translated as the church is the pillar in support of the truth. Meaning with the definite article, the. The reason is that word doesn't exist in the Greek right there. Okay? The debate is, should it be translated as the pillar of the truth or a, meaning one of many, pillars of the truth? The reason, again, there's no article there. Um, so some would argue you can only translate that as a pillar. Different translations treat it different ways. Now, when you're translating from the Greek into English, you don't always have to have the, the, the definite article there for it to be translated as the, because the context makes it really clear that it is. And so it's always a bit of um, wisdom and training and education um, by the translator to try to help figure that out or the translators to figure that out. And so there is a debate around this. But most read it just as the way I did, that the church is the pillar of the truth. Now again, not everybody's going to agree with that because they're going to say, well, the Bible's one pillar and you know, tradition is another pillar and science is another pillar. And, um, but when you look at the context here, what Paul is trying to say is that the church supports and upholds the truth. And that's true. So whether you want to get into the debate of is it the pillar or just one pillar, I'm of a... I'm of the opinion that Paul is really treating it as the church is the pillar. We are the ones that God has tasked with upholding the truth. And here's, here's partly why. There's these two words that Paul actually uses here. He uses the word pillar and he uses the word support. Um, this word pillar, um, it's just what it sounds like. You have a pillar and it upholds a building, right? It holds a roof. Without the pillars, the roof collapses down, right? So he says the church is like that. The church is a pillar. It holds something up. The second word, though, is a word that's not used anywhere else, and it's the word for support, and it's not really clear what that word means. It can mean foundation, so you've got sort of, you know, a foundation that supports the pillars, and the pillars then support the roof, and so Paul is likening the church to that foundation and those pillars that uphold the truth, which is the roof. That word, though, support, can also refer to a bulwark, meaning almost like a mound that's built to protect something from attack. And so there's, again, debate over that. I think if we just put all this stuff together and not get too caught up in all the intricacies of that, ultimately, we need to look at the forest, not just the trees. And Paul's point here is that the church has a responsibility to the truth. So whether you say, well, the church is the foundation or the church is the bulwark protecting against offense, either way, it's the same thing. It's the church's job is to protect and to uphold that truth. Now, what's he basically referring to? I think he's referring to not just the gospel, but everything written here. And it's partly because of what we see throughout these epistles. Paul routinely tells Timothy, preach and teach these things. Everything that I'm sharing with you, that's your job. He tells him to guard what's been entrusted to him. He tells him, preach the word in season and out of season. He says that the word is inspired and good for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. That means telling you what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. So everything in these three letters, these pastoral epistles, support the fact that in Paul's mind, the truth is everything he shared with Timothy, and it's all anchored by the gospel. 
That's our job as the church. God has entrusted us with this. That's why when he starts off the letter, he says, Timothy, I put you there to prevent false teaching. Why? The job of the church. That church in Ephesus, that is supposed to be a place where people hear and understand and practice the truth. What's written here? I think it's a tragedy when we, when we look around the evangelical world today and realize the shambles that our churches is, are in when it comes to the truth. It really is. You know, some of the research by George Barna and, and, and uh, Arizona Christian University and some of the others, Lifeway, that, that research this stuff on a regular basis, they've demonstrated year after year after year that the American evangelical church is getting dumber every year when it comes to understanding what's written here. That, that's, that's astounding to me. I've always... I, there's been times I've thought about going on and working on a doctorate degree just because I love academics. I loved being in seminary. Um, as my daughter says, those are my peeps. I like that environment, you know, but I've got a full-time job, I've got a family, and doing this, and I don't know that the payoff would be worth it. But there's times where I'm like, I love that environment. I always thought, what would I do for my dissertation, for my doctorate? I would do my dissertation on the state of preaching in the evangelical church today. Because I think, it's in, I think it's shambles. I read an article just not too long ago about um, the loss of exegetical preaching and teaching in the American church. In fact, coming up here, we're going to talk about that. I've got some examples that I'll share in a couple of weeks here um, on what some of our biggest evangelical teachers and preachers in the nation claim about how they start their sermons and where they turn for their content. And it's things like, I just go to the bookstore and see what's on the shelves. That's where I start. Or I got to start with what people's felt needs are. Not a single one said, I start here and decide where I'm going next and what I'm going to teach. And I'm not saying it's everyone. I'm simply saying these are the ones that are leading the church and saying, this is how you have to teach. This is how you have to preach. I had one tell me a while back that you can't lead with the word. Meaning, can't do what I'm doing here. Andy Stanley recently, not too long ago, basically said that pastors and teachers who teach like I do here, expositorily, are cheating. They're taking the easy way out. What would possess somebody to say that? Possession. Possession. Now, I'm not trying to brag. I'm not, I consider myself a blue-collar teacher and preacher, but the one thing that I will say without any type of shame is that my only job when I get up here is to open this book for you guys. Okay, And I don't say that for prideful reasons or to bring attention to myself. Dustin shares that same conviction. But I think it ties to directly what Paul is saying here. Our job as a church, as the family of the living God, it's almost like you got one thing to do. Uphold the truth. And it starts with the gospel. And if people cannot walk in to a gathering that we share together and hear the truth, we haven't done our job. But the same is true of you because sometimes the family isn't always together. But because you are part of the family of God, 
You ought to be upholding the truth. Not just in word, but in behavior. When people see you, what they ought to see is that you love the truth. So when you talk with them, when you behave around them, that's what they ought to see. Right? Because we're the pillar in support of the truth. That's what God's done. Now obviously it's this. Right? It's not our truth. It's not my truth. So what's written in here ought to be what comes out of our mouth. It ought to be what regulates our behavior. It shouldn't shock people when they, when they go, Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, you believe the Bible? shouldn't shock anybody. Some of Paul's last words to Timothy in this letter come from chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. What's been entrusted to him? Paul lays that out. Everything I've shared with you. He says, guard what's been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing the arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the truth. One of the things I despise is when some Christians will say, well, doctrine's not all that important. But if doctrine regulates behavior, teaches you how to do right, be right, about God, about how to love Him, how He loves you, if all that's unimportant, then your God is dead. Plain and simple. So what's our takeaway with that? Our behavior, when Paul says, Timothy, I'm writing to you so that you know how people ought to behave as members of God's household. And then he ties it to being a pillar of the truth. That tells us that our behavior is critical in doing that. What happens when we have people who claim the name of Jesus that don't act like Christians? What does that do to their witness? Is anybody going to believe what they say when they can't trust them because of their behavior? It's another reason why our evangelical churches, I think, are in such disarray and such a mess. Got Christians showing up every single Sunday, they don't act like Christians during the rest of the week. In fact, in many respects, they're not encouraged to. Just come here and we'll get you all worked up emotionally. Go away feeling good. But we haven't done anything to talk to you about what it's supposed to be like to be a part of God's family. We're going to talk about some confrontation in a couple of weeks here too and the rules for confrontation. Nobody likes confrontation. But it's a part of being a part of the family of God. We're going to talk about that. So let's just kind of wrap this up. I won't have you turn here. I'm just going to mention it. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, basically, chapter 9, you can look it up yourself, verse 19 and following. Good chapter to read, or good section to read. But he basically says he didn't want to preach to somebody and then be disqualified himself. And what was he saying there? You can't just say the truth. You've got to live the truth. Your behavior matters because if you say it, and then you don't behave it, you disqualify yourself. Your words are empty. They mean nothing. When Dustin here went through the qualifications for elders and deacons, he made an interesting comment, which was, everything we see in chapter 3... There's nothing in there that doesn't apply to every believer. Nothing. 
every one of those things, those qualifications, are how believers ought to behave and act. He said the only difference is they're expected to do it. Meaning, they don't become elders or deacons if they don't. It's a high bar. But that doesn't excuse the rest of us. Like, eh, it doesn't really matter for me. I'm not an elder or a deacon. Your behavior matters. My behavior matters. And so Paul, as he just reminds Timothy, this is what we sort of call a a little one-off by Paul. He's in the middle of this, laying out these instructions for Timothy, and he just takes a little pause here now to say, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you because the church is a family. They're expected to behave like it. They're the family of the living God, the living God, which means their behavior matters. And then lastly, their behavior matters because we as the church are the pillar and support of the truth. The world will get that nowhere else. If we disappear tomorrow, they got a book, none of them are going to turn to it. They see it in us. So our behavior matters. Amen?